Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 20. It's sweater vest weather, but there's nowhere to clip. There we go. All right. Acts chapter 20, and um, I would advise you to please have the outline available because that will help you follow along. Today we'll consider verses 17 to 38. But to begin, I will just read verse 25 to 28. So Acts chapter 20, verse 25 to 28. The Word of God says, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. O Father, as we come to this ancient and inspired text, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts, draw us close to Christ, help us to appreciate the church more and more, and see ourselves as as active participants in in all of her activities. And Father, we do pray, if there be any here who are not part of your church, who have not bowed the knee to Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, greetings from your sister church over in North Arlington, uh, Bread of Life. And as you've heard, we are in the process of changing our name to Risen Savior Church. I don't know exactly when that happens officially, but we can call us by both names. But I do want to invite you all to uh, our annual Christmas hymn sing on December 20th. Uh, That's a Wednesday night at, uh, well, 6 p.m. There'll be dinner. So if you're able to make it at 6 p.m., we'll have a catered meal downstairs. And then at 7.30, we'll come upstairs for the Christmas hymn sing. And um, if you've been there in years past, you know it's always an edifying and, and blessed evening. So if you want to participate, we'd love that. Uh, Please let uh, Brother Izzy know. Um, If you play an instrument, um, if you want to do a spoken word, you want to rap, I mean, it all has to go through the filter of making sure it's right. But um, I think the children are doing something. There might be some instrumentals. So if you have a talent that you want to use for the honor and glory of Christ, especially during Christmas time, we'd love to see you. North Arlington, December 20th, uh, Wednesday evening. As we get into our text, it reminds us that um, we live in a fallen world. And if we didn't live in a cursed, fallen world, uh, we would not need to lock our doors at night, or keep our money in a bank, or build a fence around our garden. Pastor Joe, who's not here, he's in North Arlington, but he knows a lot about the critters that get past his fence in his vegetable garden. And we do these things because we know that robbers exist. Hungry rodents exist. Evil people exist. It's dangerous out there in this world, and so we protect those things that are most precious to us. I think we could all relate to 
being entrusted with something valuable, or perhaps entrusting others with something valuable. House sitting, babysitting, pet sitting, holding on to a family heirloom. The urgency of our care for those things is heightened by the value of what we're looking after. So a child might put $5 in a piggy bank, but $5,000 is probably better off than an FDIC-insured bank that can hold on to your money. You wouldn't pet sit in the same way you babysit. Well, that's not true for everyone, but the, the, the value of your care rises with the value of that which you are watching. And in today's passage, the Apostle Paul is entrusting something infinitely more valuable to the elders in the Ephesian church. He is entrusting the church's care into their hands. This is Paul's passionate farewell address to a church that he has labored for for so long. The book of Acts tells us about many churches, many cities in the book of Acts. But Ephesian, the Ephesian church is one that the book of Acts talks about almost the most. Paul cares for these people. He's labored for them. And now as he is moving on to Jerusalem, he calls a council of pastors. And he says, please care for this church. I, I hope today as we look at this text, we will come away with a greater appreciation of the value of Christ's church and the need to protect her. So in this passage, verses 17 to 38, Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders. Look with me in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So he's down in Miletus. That means he's 40 miles away from Ephesus. And rather than go back to them, he's calling them to him. This is a sort of a pastor's conference. So he's not talking to the whole church. He's talking to the elders at the church of Ephesus, 40 miles away in Miletus. Now skip with me to verse 36 and 37. This is the end now of the passage. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And so this is a farewell message that Paul is giving after spending time with these men. And in his speech, I submit to you this morning or this afternoon that we see the value of the church, the vulnerability of the church, and the vehicle of protection for the church. So first, let's talk about the church's value. Look with me in verses 18 to 28. And when they came to him, that's the elders coming to Paul, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, 
that imprisonment and afflictions wait me, or await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then verse 33 to 35. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The church's value is highlighted in those words of the Apostle Paul. And there are three things I want to say about the church's value from what he just said. First, because the church is valuable, it demands our integrity. Integrity. Wholeness. Paul's life is an example of someone giving himself for the care of the church. He said back in verse 18, You know how I lived among you the whole time. He's not bragging on himself. He's simply saying, I'm the real deal, warts and all. I've lived among you with integrity. Integrity. He's sincere. He is authentic. Now, how does Paul show his integrity? Well, there's three ways he mentions here. One, his faithful service. Verse 19 tells us that he served the Lord with humility, with tears, with trials, and so on. Paul was not in it for himself. If you know the story of Paul, he didn't come to Christ and go around the Roman Empire planting churches to make himself rich. Rather, Paul experienced pain and sorrow. He experienced opposition from Jewish leaders. He's been kicked out of synagogues, dragged out of cities, stoned. Riots incited over the things Paul had said. But the church was too valuable for him to give up. Some statistics tell us that 40% of pastors have quit or strongly consider it. And I think that number has gone up in recent years, especially since COVID. And you yourselves know here in America, few people stay in the same job. When you were in high school, you probably did not imagine keeping the same part-time job forever. But most of us didn't value those jobs as we did our later careers. So we do the part-time job, then we quit. But we stick with what we value more. Paul valued his service to the Lord. He was a man of integrity, and he did not let the tears and the trials and the sorrows and the persecutions stop him from serving with his whole heart. The church's value demands our integrity. Secondly, underneath his integrity, it was displayed by the totality of his message. Not only his faithful service, but the totality of his message. Verse 20 and 21, Paul says, I didn't shrink from declaring you anything 
that was profitable. Paul lists that he taught the gospel both in public and private, house to house, both to Jews and to Greeks. He preached both repentance from God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you get the picture? Paul is basically saying, I've left nothing out. There was nothing so offensive in the gospel that I said, you know, I'm not going to highlight that part. Paul's message was total. He was a man of integrity. We need to take heed to this, brothers and sisters, because sometimes we are tempted to hide the more or the less glorious parts of our message, right? Those things that make people uncomfortable, the doctrine of hell or condemnation before God, the exclusivity of Christ as the only way, the disapproval of sexual relationships that go against the word of God. We, we were prone to shrink back. We don't want to talk about those things. But Paul preached the whole counsel of God, the whole message. And why? Because of the value of the church. When you value the church, you tell the whole truth. And Paul reiterates that in verse 26 and 27 where he says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. See, we are messengers in the hands of God. We, we don't make conversions. God does that work. But there's a sense in which we can lay our heads on our pillows at night and say, I, I didn't shrink back. I told him, I told her, I told them the truth. And Paul is saying here, I told the truth. The, the whole truth, the total message. Paul's life was one of integrity because of his faithful service, his total message, and thirdly, his generosity, his generous work ethic. Back in verse 33 and 35, he talks about how he didn't ask for silver or gold. Um, he says in verse 34 that his, his hands worked so that he could support himself. Uh, in, in the city of Corinth, Paul met Aquila and Priscilla, fellow tent makers, and then he took them to Ephesus. And he worked with them in Ephesus so that he didn't have to demand payment from the church to pay him to make it very clear that he's not in it for the money. Now, Paul would go on in other epistles to explain that ministers are entitled to payment. And, in, and at times, Paul would receive help himself, but he did not want to give an inch to the impression that he was in it for selfish gain. So he worked hard as an example. Now, you know... One of the poorest testimonies against Christianity today is leaders who are clearly in it for selfish gain. Even the world knows it. That guy on TV with the private jet, he's a phony. Those who buy those jets and luxury cars, while the people they minister to struggle to make ends meet, is a poor testimony. Because what that minister is communicating is that he values his own life more than the church. And what Paul is saying here is I value the church more than my own life. The gospel is never for sale. And thank God that charlatans will meet their judgment. But leaders must, like Paul says in verse 34, help the weak. We must help the weak. So because Paul valued the church, sorry, because Paul valued the church, he lived among them with such integrity, shown in his faithful work ethic, 
his service, and his total message to the church. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, this text reminds us that the bride of Christ deserves nothing less than this. In a day wherein we are so skeptical, and for many good reasons, of all the institutions around us, whether it be medical, educational, media, we hold everyone at arm's length, the government, right, because they've lied so much. And, sad to say, many religious leaders as well. In a day and age where we are so untrusting of leadership and of institutions, it is so important for us to value the church and wave the flag of integrity to the glory of God because God values her so much. So the church demands integrity. Secondly, the church's value demands self-sacrifice. Verse 22 to 25 Paul put the needs of the church above his own. The Holy Spirit tells him that when you go to Jerusalem, there's nothing waiting, awaiting you other than persecutions. Imagine that. You book a flight somewhere because you want to go on vacation and you're told with, without any uncertainty that you're going to meet persecution and opposition. Many of us would go the other way. The Holy Spirit told Paul, when you get there, just expect to be put in prison. And Paul's like, that's where I'm going. I'm going there. That's why they're crying at the end. One of the reasons why they're crying at the end. But the point is this. Paul is not thinking about his own convenience. He's not thinking about his own comfort. Isn't that so different than today's thinking about the church? The church is often at the bottom of our priorities. We sacrifice the church at the altar of our precious schedules, yet we find here that we ought to sacrifice our schedules, our comfort, our convenience, and more for the church because she is that valuable. Your commitment to the body of Christ will cost you. It will cost you time. It will cost you resources. And if you're not willing to do that, I ask you, as I will at the end of this sermon, do you value the church like God values her? Paul stood face to face with death during his exploits. And he was willing to go to Jerusalem for more of the same. It's only worth that, brothers and sisters, if you understand the value of the church. And what is that value? What price does God put on the church to demonstrate to us just how valuable she is? Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. His own blood. We see here as a side note that this is one of the explicit verses in the New Testament that calls Jesus God. He doesn't just say the blood of his son. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus is God. Paul doesn't even say the church is so valuable, Ephesians, because look at the sacrifice I made. He mentioned his sacrifices, right? But that, that even pales in comparison. The great worth of the church is the blood of Christ. And so, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, you are precious to God. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is the gospel that saves our souls. You are infinitely more sinful than you could ever imagine. And God loves you more infinitely than you could ever imagine. And he purchased you with his own blood. Because our sins are so severe and many, it demands such a sacrifice. Silver, gold, billions of dollars could not cover your sin or mine. We can never bargain with God and buy our way to heaven. We are sinners and we stand in need of salvation. And so God in his infinite mercy and love sends his only begotten and precious son to cover our sins with his perfect righteousness, shedding his blood on our behalf. And that is the purchase of blood. You were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Individually and corporately, the church is precious and valuable. God places this value on his church. You might say to a neighbor, please watch my house while I'm on vacation because it costs, you know, $350,000, $400,000. Or we say to the banker, Please watch my portfolio because this is my retirement. That's valuable, right? We say to a loved one, please watch this family heirloom, this pocket watch. It's, a, it's an heirloom passed down through generations. It has very high sentimental value. But Paul says to the Ephesian elders, care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There's nothing in this world that can have more value than that. You cannot raise the bar higher. And say there's something higher than that that costs more, that's more valuable. Not at all. And so when you understand this cosmically high value, then you can see the need to treat your relationship to the church with integrity and self-sacrifice. By way of contrast then, when you and I fail to walk in integrity, when we fail to sacrifice for the church, Perhaps it's because we've underestimated her value. So may God use this text to open our eyes to the value of the church. May we treasure her more and more. There's a second thing we need to look at today. That not only is the church valuable, the church is vulnerable. The church is vulnerable. Look with me in verses 29 31. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You capture what Paul is trying to communicate here? The church is vulnerable, but let me clarify. When I say vulnerable, I don't mean weak. I don't mean frail. She is strengthened by the Lord. When I say vulnerable, I mean she is subject to attack. Lambs among wolves. And so the church carries a sense of vulnerability. As you know, we live in this sort of already not yet tension. Already we're seated with Christ. Already our salvation is complete, but yet we're here on earth 
surrounded by a sin-cursed world, inhabiting fallen bodies with false teachers and false brethren and wolves on the prowl, doing Satan's bidding for him. We are saved and sanctified, but we are also surrounded. So brothers and sisters, you ought to care for the church because of her value, but also because of her vulnerability. If you decide to treat the church of God with indifference and apathy, you fail to realize the danger you're putting her in. Now, what is that danger? Well, there's two kind of a two uh, flip side of a coin here: wolves from the outside, and false brothers from the inside. Wolves from the outside. Verse 29, Paul is very clear to say, "I know that after my departure, wolves will come in among you." He doesn't just guess, right? He he knows. He's seen it with his own eyes, and I'm sure the Spirit of God has something to do with this warning. Jude warns us of false teachers. Paul warns Timothy about false teachers. The Apostle John warns us about false teachers. Jesus warned us about false teachers. There is nothing new under the sun. So you turn on TBN, you go to the Christian bookstore, and you see all these false teachers. Yeah, that's sad. That's been going on for a long, long time. And these are wolves in sheep's clothing. They don't care. They, they love themselves, not the church. They are messengers of Satan, and Paul knows this. And that's why he warns them with tears. He has worked so hard to establish this church, and he knows that if they let their guard down, that church can cease to exist. So it's not like, you know, you drop your kid off at a high-security, baby-proof, sterilized, sanitized daycare center run by approved and vetted adults. This is more like, quick, the enemy is attacking. Take my child and make sure she's safe. The church is the dwelling place of God, but it's surrounded by the world. And it's that serious. And Paul is entrusting the Ephesian elders with something very valuable and very vulnerable. And these wolves are seeking from the outside, to eat the sheep. But even more sadly, I think, is what he says in verse 30, that from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. There will be false brothers from within. Now remember, Paul called elders to come down to Miletus for this meeting. So he might be... He might be suggesting from your own selves, as in somewhere in the Ephesian church. But he's talking to, let's say, 10, 15 men. I don't know the number. And he's saying from among you. So it could be the elders. There could be an elder standing there in Acts 20, listening to Paul pour his heart out, who would later become a false teacher. Or maybe he was a false teacher waiting for his opportunity to pounce as soon as Paul left. See, Jesus had many enemies, as you know. So the church will have many enemies. Jesus had enemies without. The Pharisees, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Romans. But he also had enemies within. Of course, Judas. The one with whom they shared meals. The one with whom they sang songs. The one with whom they went on missions. Betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these false brethren, they will twist scripture They will teach falsehood. 
They will draw away disciples. They will divide the church. They will convince gullible people that they're the ones that should be followed and their leaders are corrupt. And so Paul warns the elders. He says, be alert. Don't let your guard down. He doesn't say, if you guys do a good job, you'll be free from attack. No, he says the wolves will come. He says false leaders will arise. The church, the bride of Christ, who is precious and chosen and bought with blood, is vulnerable to attack. You must stand guard. When I was in um, third or fourth grade, went on a field trip, and I remember standing outside the park. It was actually field day, one of my favorite times of year. We're standing outside the baseball field, and suddenly I, I, I hear, kind of feel rustling somewhere around my, my ear. And I still remember to this day because it freaked me out. I, like, I thought it was like a plastic wrapper. I kind of slapped my head and I grabbed whatever it was. And then I looked at it and it was a bee. And ever since that day, I have been afraid of bees. More afraid that they would go into my ear. That's, that's my, when I go on a hike, I, I, I want to wear earmuffs, honestly. I've been stung a few times. Thank God, no allergic reaction, but it's the buzzing in my ear that I can't stand. When I was in grammar school, you know, no air conditioning, obviously, the windows are wide open in the summer. Inevitably, a bee would fly in the room. It didn't matter what the teacher was teaching. I was looking at that bee the whole time. Well, fast forward to earlier this year. We were at a corporate prayer meeting right here in Wayne, downstairs. And there's a bee. We're about to go to the throne of God. And I am having a hard time concentrating because there's a bee flying around. And I want to thank our brother Nathan, who stood up so valiantly. And he zeroed in on that bee. He took off his shoe. I think it was your shoe. Slapped that bee right against the window, and I watched with glee and relief as that bee just went down to the floor. I was vulnerable. I mean, I'm a little bigger than a bee, but I was vulnerable to attack, and someone was on guard and neutralized the threat. And so with that out of the way, I was able to pray, undistracted, probably still distracted by other things, but not as distracted because the bee is gone, And halfway through the prayer meeting, halfway through the prayer meeting, there's this odd itch in my ankle. Now, mind you, I'm I'm wearing dress pants, long pants. So I take my other shoe, the tip of the shoe, and I sort of cross my legs and, and scratch that itch with my shoe, only to feel this sharp pain in my ankle. And so I kind of get up and I shake out my pant leg and you know what it was? It was the bee. (laughs) And the bee was finally dead because he had used his stinger on me. I do thank you, Nate. You know, he didn't know, I didn't know. We all thought the bee was dead. The bee was not dead. And in, in, in the room of all these people targeting the one kid And there was, clearly there was a, the bee sting mark. It, it hurt for the next, you know, half hour or so. But you know what this teaches me? 
is that we can't be content when we think we've neutralized the threat. Ten years ago, I remember there was a man came to our church, visited a few times, and was trying to teach us that the Trinity was a false doctrine. I don't mean he came to the elders and said, can you explain the Trinity to me because I, I'm confused. He, he was going to church members, trying to tell them that a center circle issue was false. And we pounced on that, and he got some good arguments. And whoever was there back then, if you know what I'm talking about, thank you for your discernment. And I don't think that that man has come back. And I don't say that just as though he's an object. I do pray that he would repent of that. But we can't grow content and say, well, 10 years ago, someone tried to come in here. And we've neutralized the threat. So we're good to go. And we let our guard down. Because the whole point here is that as long as Jesus has not yet come back, the church will exist. The lambs will exist among the wolves. The wheat will exist among the tares. The church will exist among the world. We must ever be vigilant to take out those who would seek to do the church harm. There will be false brothers from without, false brothers from within. And this then brings us to this last point. That the church is given a vehicle of protection in this passage. Just like Nate conjured up the courage to neutralize the bee... So God works through means. And the means that he works through in this chapter are the elders who are charged with caring for the church of God. Verse 32 says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Don't miss verse 32, brothers and sisters. Paul is not giving a sob story. He's giving the, the reality, but he's not ending on a sour note. He is not saying all is hopeless. He is saying there are threats, but I'm commending you to God. And God is going to use you by his word of grace and build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, he's ending with a, hope, a note of hope and encouragement that even though the threats are real, the church is valuable and vulnerable. God will equip you to make sure that the church perseveres. And if you take verse 32 and sort of divide into three categories, what I could say is this, that the vehicle of protection is faithful elders led by God, equipped by the word of grace. Faithful elders led by God, equipped by the word of grace. Now, I want to um, assure you, that I don't believe this is the only vehicle of protection, as if everything um, you know, rises and falls on the elders alone. But I do believe that what Paul is communicating is that this is the primary source of protection for the church. That through the elders, as the means, the Holy Spirit will help the church to ward off error and to live in truth. So first, it has to be faithful elders, right? Verse 28 Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul is charging elders with this task. Chapter 20, uh, verse 28, elders. Elders are mature men of God. I think whether they are necessarily ordained or not, this refers to those men in the church who are leading and teaching the church. And, and we could examine this from the New Testament. You know this well. These are to be men of character. 
more important than public speaking skills, more important than dynamic personality. They are to be humble, mature, not greedy, not indulgent, honest, patient, and able to teach. Not like many of the leaders propped up in our world today. And they are to be pastors. The, the, the term pastor comes mainly from this verse, where Paul tells these elders to shepherd the church, or uh, to, to, to watch over the flock, a flock of sheep. Who, who looks over a flock but shepherds, pastors? So these elders are to be like Christ. They are to be like shepherds who feed the sheep and guide the sheep and warn the sheep and even discipline the sheep when necessary. All of this is for your and my protection. They are also to act as bishops. Again, in this, in this verse, verse 28, he says, the Spirit has made you overseers. Bishop is an overseer. It's the Greek word episkopos, meaning to see over things, right? An overseer is appointed by the Holy Spirit who has a bird's eye view of the church, looking out for the wolves, guarding the truth, guarding the gate to membership or to who comes to the Lord's table or who gets baptized or who might be disciplined. Now, with all due respect to my brothers and sisters and other denominations, I believe that we as a Baptistic church gets it right when we believe that all three of these descriptions refer to the same office. In other words, an elder is a pastor who is an overseer. And one of the two offices God gives, which is along with deacon and elder, he gives to the church for her good. And these men who are filling this threefold role are a vehicle of protection for the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. They must be faithful elders, but secondly, they must be led by God. Right? Back in verse 32, Paul says, I commend you to God. They're not doing this in their own strength. The elders must be led by God. There's no way that I or any of your pastors can protect the church from her vulnerability simply by doing it in our own way. So Paul commends them to God because the church is God's dwelling place. We are indwelt by the Spirit. We are a temple for the Lord. In verse 28, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves. That means that we, as those of us who are pastors and elders, must not only care for the flock, but watch our own life, our own doctrine, our own morals. Not just caring for people, but that we too, as elders, are in step with the Lord. That we too are mortifying sin and delighting in the presence of God. Faithful elders ought to be so filled with the Holy Spirit and then minister out of that overflow. Always remembering the promise of Jesus Christ that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The church will not ultimately die. There have been wolves in sheep's clothing since the time of Acts 20 till now, and we're still here. But understand this, local expressions of churches can and do die. They can and do apostatize. They can leave their first love. They can have their candlestick burnt out. All it takes is a little division, a little heresy to destroy an entire local church. But our church's success and health is a work of God. And he gets the glory, not the elders. So they must be faithful elders, led by God, and finally equipped by the word of grace. Equipped by the word of grace. Again, verse 32 says, the word of grace. What does that mean? 
But most commentators say that word of grace is a phrase synonymous for the gospel. In other words, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God into salvation, that gives us access to the Father, that obliterates our sin, that is the cause of our growth in holiness, and that is the driving force behind all that we do. The word of grace, in verse 32, Paul says, is able to build you up. I hope that when you come to church, you are built up not only by the sweet fellowship, not only by the beautiful singing, but by hearing the gospel. Whether it's the gospel in song, or the gospel in fellowship, or the gospel through the word, that ultimately, at the end of the day, what will never fail you is the fuel of the gospel to edify you and to build you up as individuals and as a church. And Paul is confident. He's confident that wolves will come, but he's confident that the word of grace will build the church. Elders are just as much a part of the church as all the members. And so we who are elders will also be strengthened as the gospel is rightly preached and taught and believed and followed. And thank God that it's referred to here as the word of grace. Not law, but grace. Grace must mark our ministry. Grace is God's free favor, unearned favor. It is set forth in Christ. And everything we teach and do and every ministry we have, every outreach we have, must come back to the foundation of the glorious gospel of grace. This is how we who are elders are equipped. This is how we then equip you to stop living in condemnation, to have peace in your hearts, and to have the motivation to serve sacrificially when we apprehend the glories of God's matchless grace. And thus... Paul's meeting here ends. In verse 36 and 30 to 38, we already read this, that he, he kneels down, he prays with them. Look with me in verse 38. And being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul is on his way, having given that speech. And I ask you today as I close, does your view of the church align with God's view of the church. I think in some ways we can say, on paper it does, but I have a little bit of work to do. And you probably know by now where a sermon like this will lead in terms of application. You're, you're, you kind of see it coming, right? You're thinking, okay, he's going to tell us that we've got to be more engaged in the church, come more often, come more on time, attend midweeks, get involved in each other's lives, go evangelize, pray more, read your emails, read your calendar. You're not way off. We must see ourselves as active participants in the church. And how could a passage like this not motivate us for greater appreciation and greater participation in the church? I think any spirit-indwelled believer would want this. But how do we get to that point? It's certainly not going to be by beating the same drum over and over. It's not going to be by guilt and shame. It's not going to be by law, but by grace. When we do things just because, do this, and that's it. You know after a few weeks, you give up. What needs to happen is our minds must be renewed. We must align how we see the church with how God sees the church, and that happens by faith that what the Spirit inspires here is true. 
And if you believe it is true, your heart will calibrate toward it. We must see her value and her vulnerability, that you and I would see those things in life that we choose to engage in with more faithfulness and more gusto and more energy than in the church, and they are not as valuable as the church in God's eyes. Or vulnerability. Think, think about this. If you miss time at work, you know there will be consequences. If you miss time at the gym, if you're athletic, you know you'll have consequences. If you miss time studying for something, you know that there'll be consequences to that. Why is it that missing time at church seems to be no big deal? Christ's blood was not shed for your gym or your school or your job. It was shed for the church. And we have it backwards. And sheep are vulnerable when they are not with the flock. When they wander off, you're more vulnerable to the wilderness of this world. Thus, we should value the church more. But please, don't read false modern meanings into the church. This is not talking about some sentimental love for the worldwide church. Who's Paul talking to here? He's talking to Ephesian elders about the Ephesian church made up of Ephesian Christians. In other words, that church was purchased by the blood of Christ. And bread of life waned, purchased by the blood of Christ. This is about primarily your local body. And so all church members, ordained to ministry or not, must then walk in close community with one another, valuing one another, protecting one another in Christ-like love. Please understand, brothers and sisters, we are in this together. And when we are united together, and we participate in the life of the church together, protected by imperfect but faithful elders who are led by God and equipped by the word of grace, not only will we be protected from the wolves, we will, as verse 32 promises, be built up and receive an inheritance among all the saints. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the value of the bride of Christ, his body, your family. She is precious to God. She is to be treated with care. She is not to be slandered, undermined, or ignored. And you, who are part of this body, understand, you are precious. You have been bought with the blood of Christ. You have been redeemed by his atoning sacrifice. You have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You are forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, future. You are beloved and accepted before God. You are worthy of protection because you belong to God. You see how much he cares for you? How much he loves you? He did not spare his own son for you. And it's true. On earth, in this tension, we might be many things. The church might be many things, weak in many areas, but she is ultimately what God says she is. And you and I might be weak, sinners, unworthy, but our worth is found in Christ, whose blood has ransomed us. Amen. At this time, we call a brother up here to um, lead us in a prayer of confession. May the Lord use his word in our lives today to bring us to greater faithfulness in him. Brother Hinton, I believe, is coming up. Yeah.